we're introducing a series that um, we're going to center around the book of 1 Corinthians. And if you open up your New Testament and, and you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, it's a pretty long book, 16 chapters worth. Some of the chapters are kind of short, but a lot of them are pretty long. Important things that are happening in there. And we're going to call it Church is Hard. And I picked that title because if you've ever read through 1 Corinthians, or if you would this week, I would encourage you to do so, you're going to discover that Paul was wrestling with things that uh, were hard. Hard things were going on in Corinth. You've got people that are looking at each other, one arrogant, looking down on other people, uh, claims of spiritual superiority because of gifts some had and some didn't have. You've got people suing each other, uh, Christians suing each other in a, in a public court. Uh, you've got people abusing. Don talked about the table, and, and it seems as though as you read through some of that, that their communion service was a great big meal as much as anything. And uh, you would uh, find some people would uh, take advantage of that and some would leave drunk and full while others didn't even get to eat. And it was just the whole spirit of what was wrong. You had sexual misbehavior of all kinds of things. One guy sleeping with his stepmom and all kinds of things that are going on that make you scratch your head and you think, this is kind of messy. This is a bit uh, of a crazy situation going on. There were struggles of all kinds between attitudes and actions towards each other that were, uh, were difficult. And so Paul, the man who planted this church, if you were here with us last week in Acts 18, uh, we read through that little section where Paul was in Corinth and he plants this church in Corinth. And now about three years later, he, he hears, he's moved on to plant other churches and he's heard both from a messenger who has come and... Um, and a letter that the people in Corinth have sent to him that he is writing this letter back, which is where 1 Corinthians comes from. But he feels a bit like an exasperated parent. My son, when he heard that we were going to do 1 Corinthians, he sent me this, that Paul, this is Paul checking in on the Corinthians, and that's Paul after he hears what's all the things that are going on. So it's just that feeling, oh, oh, oh my, what in the world are we doing here? What's going on here? And so we've got this situation of a relatively young church, who, has, who lives in a culture that is very different from the ones that uh, they're being called to in Christ. But, and so you've got the outward pressure, but you've also got people who have grown up in that culture, and it's hard to shed those old ways, uh, those things that they have grown up with. And so I will bet that you have found yourself a few times in your life wrestling with the harder side of church. And what do you do with that? Well, there was once a mother who went to her son to wake him up for Sunday morning church. And so she knocked on his door and he said, I'm not going today. Why not? Asked his mother. I'll give you two good reasons, he said. One is, they don't like me. And number two is, I don't like them. Well, his mother replied, well, I'll give you two good reasons why you are going today. First, you're 47 years old. And second, you're the pastor. So, um, and so... Church can be hard. It can have some things that are difficult with it. And so there's, lots, there's much for us that we can learn from 1 Corinthians just about interacting with all of this, this whole community thing that God has called us to. Um, Paul gives a lot of counsel. And what I love about this book, though, it could have been a much shorter book. If Paul would have just said, here's the problem, here's three things, stop doing the rest of it. Okay, He could have made that a very short book. But Paul doesn't do that. With every issue that comes up, he doesn't give us a legalistic set of rules, nor does he just say it doesn't matter. In every situation that he faces, he brings us back to the gospel. 
He comes back to this is who Jesus was. This is what Jesus did. This is who Jesus is now. And as a result of who we are in him, how should we behave and live our life and think about each other? He always roots everything back in the gospel and the cross. And so um, that takes some unpacking sometimes. And so uh, some of the things we're going to read are going to wander a little bit, it feels like. But it's always Paul rooting every issue back to the gospel. And so church can be hard, but it's my hope that we'll be encouraged with the truth that not only is church hard, we all know that, but there's a truth I think that 1 Corinthians draws out that Jesus is worth it. He is worth the effort. Uh, He is worth whatever it takes for us to to keep working at his dream of this community. So I'm going to ask for a little crowd precipitation, participation, whatever it is. You talk back to me is what I want you to do, uh, whatever that word is. So I'm going to say the word church is hard, but I want you to say back to me, but Jesus is worth it. Okay? So church is hard. Church is hard. And so I hope that as we walk our way through this book and we see the things that it brings up, um, It's going to make us scratch our heads sometimes. It's going to take us places that are probably uncomfortable. It's going to take us places where every other voice you hear in culture is going to say, don't think that, don't believe that. And so it's going to be a a, a challenging book because it's hard to do church. So church is hard, but there you go. You remembered very good. That's good. So. I want to summarize a few background facts, though. Here's a map. Um, I know you all love maps. And so here's a map of Corinth. Um, a few weeks ago, the attention of the world was focused on the Suez Canal because a ship had become lodged there, right? And all the traffic couldn't get back and forth, and it took delays. And if you haven't got to your package yet, it's probably floating around the Horn of Africa or something like that. So it created all kinds of delays in, in the world. And so Corinth was a place that was famous and rich and important because of the same place like the Suez Canal, right? You see that little sliver of land right there? Someone's being helpful there. I like that. Very good. Um, The little arrow that's pointing you there, um, that was just a couple of miles wide. And so if you were traveling from the west to the east or from the east to the west, that little sliver of land made it quite possible to speed up travel. So it was a very much a place where east and west met because if you landed on one side, they, they, if you had a small ship, they would unload your, or they would pick up your ship actually and, and take it across the little piece of land, put you back in the water and away you went and you saved yourself a bunch of time. If you had a big ship, they'd unload it really fast, shuttle it across the, the, the little um, piece of land and they'd reload it really fast and you'd be on your way again. And so for those reasons, it was a very... Um, important strategic city. It was a wealthy city because lots of commerce and trade flowed through there. Someone um, in describing though the culture of Corinth said if you took the, the attitude or, or the, the place of New York City, mixed it with some Los Angeles and then threw in some Las Vegas, you'd probably have the feel of what Corinth was. It's kind of a very booming economical place like New York, uh, but you also get the feel the vibe that if you want to make something of yourself, you want to become important in the world, it's kind of got that Los Angeles feel to it, but it's also got the Las Vegas feel to it. If you want to go sin, this is your place to do it. You can do it in a hundred different ways and everybody else is doing it, so it's fine there. And so it's got that vibe to it. And so in the middle of all of that, Paul shows up and he plants a church. And as we saw last week, if you read Acts 18 on your own, you can see that this church began to grow. 
and, and people were one. And, and this church existed and it, it went on fine. And Paul ministered there for 18 months, which was a long time for him to stay someplace. And then he finally moves on to other towns to plant new churches and continue that work. But that was probably about 52 A.D. or so. And now it's about 55 or so, 54, 55 A.D. And it's been three years or so. And Paul is hearing now news from this young congregation that things are a little bit of a struggle. Uh, things are not going greatly in some ways. And so Paul writes his response um, in multiple concerns, with multiple concerns that he's hearing about. And this is what he writes. Um, so we're just going to look at the first nine verses here this morning as an introduction. Um, but what Paul does, I think, is important because of all the other things um, he's going to talk about, I think he reminds them of this foundational thing of, um, of how do you make this whole thing work better. All right, number one, verse one. Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes. And so there's a whole sermon, there's a whole lesson there around Paul, right? But, but we've kind of touched on that the last few weeks building up to this. Paul and all that he was and his authority as an apostle and all the things that Christ had done to change his life. But then he reminds the church of who they are. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Over the next many weeks, we're going to look at Paul's directions on how to do church in a way that brings the most glory to God, that brings the most, most health uh, to anyone who engages in it, and it also presents the best witness to those who look from the outside. Not going to fix everything, not going to make everything smooth and easy, but it's certainly, he, he gives us a, a plan and, and a path forward. But I think his big emphasis at the beginning of this is, which is probably where we always need to go. When we're thinking, well, how do we solve this thing or what do we do with this? You have to ask, well, who are you, church? Who are you? Your identity of how you answer that question determines everything else about you. Who are you? Before he leads them to do anything, he takes them back to who they are. And so the question that we want to simply ask today, based on these verses and the ones to follow, is who are you, church? By God's definition of it, we might have all different kinds of answers from ourselves, but when God looks at you and speaks his identity, speaks your identity over you as a, a group of people, who are you, church? And so I got four answers to that question from this text. The first is this, who are we? Number one, we are a people who belong to God and God alone. We are a people who belong to God and God alone. The people of Corinth would have grown up belonging to all kinds of things, all kinds of associations, all kinds of business things, all kinds of family groups, all kinds of things. And those things didn't necessarily go away. But when they crossed the line from not Christ to Christ, um, as you read in Acts 18, they believed in the gospel, they were baptized into him. And when they crossed that line, they became a people who belonged to God and God alone. Every other thing began to take a second place to that key thing. The church was purchased by God, and, and he reminds them that they don't belong to other things. They belong to God and God alone, and nothing else can trump that. And so we live in a way to please him then and not 
others or ourselves. I don't belong to myself anymore. I don't belong to other people. I belong to him. Um, if you remember last week, we read this verse from Acts 18, verse 9 and 10, where Paul has, he's feeling fear because of his ministry work. And he's kind of done this several times and knows that there's certain points when persecution and the mobs tend to show up and make his life uncomfortable and challenging and fearful. And he's at one of those places in Corinth. And Jesus shows up and says this, And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For, and note the, note the personal pronouns, I believe is the right word, for I have many in this city who are my people. Now, those people are not Christians yet. They have not heard the gospel yet. But Jesus needs Paul to stay there and do his work because he has people. He knows those who are his. And he knows that when the gospel is preached, those people will respond to it. And they will join his people. But it's the little pronouns, I have and my people. They're not yours, Paul. They're not anybody else's. They are mine because they're going to give themselves to me. And so there's that um, ownership. Um, it's the old Toy Story movie where Andy, the, the cowboy, um, it's a big deal when he has Andy scrawled on the bottom of his boot and then it gets painted over and he looks at that and he, he's sad because he's not owned anymore. But Jesus is saying that when we ask the question, well, who are we, church? When we gather, we are first and foremost a people who belong to God and God alone. And that was not done in a cheap or easy manner. It was done, it was purchased, that we become his through the greatest sacrifice God could possibly give. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul will later write, Or do you not know that your body, your vessel, is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you? And by the way, when I say church, I do not mean a physical structure. I mean the people who gather in that structure, or we gather outside, or we gather wherever. It is the people that Paul is talking about, never buildings. That you are a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought with a price. And so glorify God in your body. You were bought with a price. Now what was that price? That price was the blood and the body of Jesus Christ. You read the story of his crucifixion, of his death, of, his, of the pain that he endured to buy his people. And so when we talk about we are a people who belong to God and God alone... That is implying what we're about to do next is that there was a great price that had to be paid in order for us to be his. And so that leads to the second thing. Who are you, church? We are also a people cleansed and called out by God for holy lives or to pursue Christ-like holiness. We are a people cleansed by Christ and what Christ did for us, called out by God to pursue or to live out Christ-like holiness. He uses the same word, the same root word, at least twice in the next phrase, when he says to those sanctified in Christ, which to be sanctified is to be made clean, right? That Christ's blood covers us and we are made forgiven and whole and, and restored through his blood. He sanctified us in Christ and called us to be saints or holy ones. And that's the same root word. Both sanctified and saints is the same word. Now, he's not calling us to be old, dead ancestors. That's not what saints are in the Bible. Saints in the Bible are all of God's living, breathing people at any given moment. So you may not think of yourself as very much, but if you are a believer in Christ, you are a saint according to what Paul's definition of a saint was in those times. 
And so he calls us towards this. The whole sanctified thing means in the verb tense of that word is it's an action done once with ongoing ramifications. We are sanctified. We are called to be holy, even though we're not holy through what Christ has done for us. But now our whole pursuit is how do I live that out? How do I live up to what I have been given in Christ? I am sanctified. And so living out a saint, the life of a saint of holiness is really the, the, the pattern of living up to being sanctified. Listen to what he calls us to here. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11. He lists several sins that we'll get to eventually, but he says, so, some, so were some of you, but then you were washed, and you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. That through Christ, God made us clean and forgiven as we responded in faith to him. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, I love the picture, though. Again, this is not just God throwing us in the washer, coming out and throwing us somewhere. This is his blood, his passion. I love this passage. Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He loved his people. That he might, here's our word, sanctify her, make her holy and clean, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. And so, who are we? We are first a people who belong to God and God alone. Secondly, we are a people cleansed and called out by God to pursue Christ-likeness and holiness in our lives. Number three, who are you, church? We are a part of the global family of God. I love the phrase where Paul comes and says, and, and all others who call on the Christ, whether they be here or far, all the people everywhere who call on the name of the Lord. You see, he reminds us in a church that's caught up in division, in a church that's caught up in arrogance because my gifts are better than your gifts and I'm more important than you are, or I have more than you have, all the things that were dividing them, he reminds them to lift their eyes and to see that that this little congregation in Corinth is so much bigger. It's a bigger thing, a much bigger work that God is doing in the world. And it's not just bigger, it's eternal. It's the thing that God started at the beginning of the Bible. It's the thing that God will end with at the end of the Bible. In Genesis 15, God calls Abraham and says, I'm going to bless all the nations of the earth through you, through the faith like Abraham he's going to model for us. And God makes this promise in Genesis 15. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars, if you are able to number them. And then he said, So shall your offspring be. Again, look at the sky. Go out on a beautiful night. It's been a beautiful few nights this past week. And um, just look at the stars and just the numerous thing, the bigger thing that's out there. We're just so small in that. And so there's a, a sense of humility and a pause that ought to come to us when we think, Man, I am honored to be a part of a bigger thing that I am a part of through Christ. And, and so that's not just the beginning of your Bible. Go to the end of your Bible in Revelation 7. You get this scene. And after this, I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, that's that purity thing again, that sanctified thing, with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So we are part of a global family of God. We are part of something much bigger and that when we pause to take communion today, we join millions of people all around this earth. 
We join millions before us. We pray millions after us will join in the worship of Jesus for the salvation he has brought us. And so we are part of something bigger than just what happens at this little corner uh, on a street in Eldon. We are part of a bigger thing. And so who are you, church? Uh, We're bought and we belong to God. We are cleansed and called out to be Christ and live like him. We are part of this global family of God, Paul reminds them. And then he finally gets, as we, before we read the last four or five verses here, from verse four to verse nine, I just need to define a word for us. It's a simple word. It's the word you. Now in the English language, there is no way to distinguish whether the word you is singular or plural, but it matters on those things. And it matters for this reason. Um, but we have been creative, right? Some of you have enough Southern in you, Southern person in you, that there is a plural way to say you, right? There's you, the singular, like you, but there's also, what's the Southern word for all the people? It's y'all. It's y'all, right? So that's the difference. In Greek, though, it was very easy to see a singular you, or is this talking about the whole group? And so we're going to read verse 4 down through verse 9, and when we do so, I've highlighted the word you, and I, every time you see the word you in yellow, you're going to be helping me here. You're going to say y'all, okay? Don't be awkward. Everybody's going to do it. Uh, some of you, it's the second nature to say that. So it's okay. And so um, some of you, this will be a good indoctrination into your country roots, okay? And so, um, and so we're going to read this passage, though, but I, I want to emphasize this word. Because if you read this from a singular you, you're going to read this differently than if you're all a part of this, right? So, and we'll define that. So let's read the passage. Verse four says, I give thanks to my God always for, because of the grace of God that was given in Christ Jesus, that in every way were enriched in him in all speech and knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among, so that are not lacking in any gift as wait for the revealing of the Lord Jesus Christ. Who will sustain to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And God is faithful by whom we're called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yeehaw. We just did it. All right. Very good. And so we just did that. Right. So, but the, the plural word there is important because Paul brings up gifts. He brings up talents and spiritual gifts that God gives to people. And what was happening, as we'll get later into this letter, is that some people saw that as a singular. God has given me this gift. And because I have this gift, I'm more important than you. You're not necessary. Or they had the flip side, because I don't have that gift, I'm not worth much. So there was this struggle going on in this church because they were reading that singularly. But Paul changes that when he uses the plural. When he says that, you know what, the the giving of gifts, the giving of talents and spiritual gifts to his church is not so that I can be built up and I can be exalted. It's so that y'all, all the body will be built up because I may not have a gift, but you have a gift and together that gift builds us all up. And so it's the y'allness, if that's a word, of this that Paul is emphasizing, which leads to the fourth thing. Who are you, church? We are blessed by God's grace with gifts for the good of another. We are a blessed people. Every one of us has a gift to give for the good of the body. 
And Paul will use that illustration deeply later in this book. And so he brings up gifts for the first time, and, and he just touches on them here and the importance of, of seeing that this is not about me. You see, when I am owned by the Lord, bought by the Lord, cleansed by the Lord, called out by the Lord, called into the, the, the people of God everywhere, I'm a part of a bigger thing. And what I bring is not so that I can be benefited and I can be enriched and I can be built up. It is so that I bring it to the bigger thing. And the bigger thing honors the Lord. And the bigger thing meets the needs of the body. And the bigger thing um, is a better witness to the world because it's not about me anymore. It is about what I bring to the body collectively. And so we come today and we ask the question, <laughs> who are you, church? Who are you, church? Well, you are blessed by God's grace with gifts for the good of another. And you are part of the global family of God. And you are a people cleansed and called out by God for holy lives. And you are a people who belong to God and God alone. And so I don't normally do this. I, we all get in habits, don't we? We get used to it. Sunday morning, I get in my car and I don't necessarily think I'm going to someplace. It's a, I, mean, I don't mean this negatively, but just I'm not going to like the earth-shaking place of my week, right? It, it's church. It can be church. It's, it's a good place. I love it there. Um, but I don't oftentimes think if I was to pause in my car on a Sunday morning and just give some thought to the fact that who am I? Who are we? And what takes place here, um, again, it, it, we're still going to stumble and fall and wrestle and struggle, but it's in the mentality of thinking this is something special. This is a special thing in my life because of my relationship with God, but it's not me, just me. It's all. It's as we come together, there is this thing that happens um, together, that oftentimes what God is doing in you, he's trying to work out in y'all, in, in y'allness, in, in all of that. And so we are called to give thought to your identity. Who are you, church? And so may our prayer today be that God would remind us of that. Would he humble us with that? Would he maybe correct us? Would he grow us? Would he do those things as we come and, and we see the that church was, is God's, it's not mine, it's, it's not yours, it's, it's his. And so how do we work together to make it best for, for him and for others uh, outside of ourselves? May God remind us today of our identity. Would you pray with me, please? Our God and Father, we come and we just thank you for this reminder. There's a humility that comes from realizing that we are not the center of this. Christ and what he has done for us and what you are doing through him and your spirit are the center of all this. And so may we come humbly. May we come hungry to be a part of what God is doing in the world through his people and that bigger thing that's around us. May we try, strive, and, and come seeking faithfulness that we might answer that call and hear that call of, yes, I've been set free, but am I really engaging in the call to be what I have been called to be? So Lord, would you just use this reminder today of our identity, whether I am the church collected here or as we break out and we're the church in a hundred different places in our community this week. May we know who we are and live that out. So we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.